Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. And we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13 this week. And as we'll see next week, we'll, we'll begin a little bit with 12 and 13. This is one of the places where it's really hard to break, where to break up Mark's gospel because he's using the sandwiching technique that I've talked about where he kind of starts one story and then does another one and then finishes it. So we're going to do 6, 1 to 13 this week and then beginning at verse 12 next week again. So Mark chapter 6, it'll be up here on the screen and in your booklet and follow along in your Bible. Hear now the word of God. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then he went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. We're going to put a photo up here on the screen. This was from right about a year ago. My wife and I were out there in the great town of Eric, Oklahoma. Anybody here ever been in Eric, Oklahoma? Who's that back there? Richard? I've listened to your accent. I think you're from New England, not from down south. Uh, Richard and I actually talked about this the other day. This is from a little rural town when we were traveling on Route 66. And in the town of Eric, Oklahoma, they have this huge mural, mural right there on Route 66 because... The person on the left is Roger Miller. Anybody remember a song that Roger Miller sang? King of the Road. If you, if you go back and listen, and in a different generation, you might, you might go back and watch the Disney cartoon for Robin Hood, and he's the narrator and the singer in that. But he was quite a... What? Yeah, we're going to sing uh, King, King of the Road. We'll sing that next week. And the other one is the ever-famous Sheb Woolley. Any Sheb Woolley fans here? 
<laughs> Richard is. Actually, if you are of my generation, you'll remember him. He sang a song called The Purple People Eaters. That was popular in the Minnesota uh, Vikings, had a defensive line that was named after that song. And I bring this up because as we were driving through, this is one of the stops on Route 66 because they now take these sons who had grown up there and they've got this monument to them because there's not a lot of other stuff going on in Eric, Oklahoma. And they are famous and celebrated now, but neither one of them were famous nor celebrated when they were originally in Eric, Oklahoma. It was only later that they became famous and celebrated. And what we find, if you think about it, is usually, even when a town will celebrate a native son later, when the native son or daughter is trying to become famous, how do people react to them? Uh, you're getting above your raisin, is a way that we used to say it down south. You're, you're getting too big for your britches. You, you need to recognize you're just one of us and leave all of that other stuff to other people. And we see exactly that reaction when Jesus, who we've been following through the Gospel of Mark, when he returns to Nazareth, we're going to see their response is not to put a mural up. Their response is, who do you think you are? You're getting above your raisin. So let's dive in and look at the text. Now notice Mark tells us after Jesus has been doing all these miracles. Remember we saw his parables in Mark 4. And then in Mark 5 there's a whole series of great miracles that Jesus has done. Concluding with raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. So it's been just this building crescendo of Jesus' powerful word and his powerful deeds. Well then suddenly in Mark chapter 6 we read that Jesus leaves and he returns to his hometown, which Mark doesn't identify here, but we know from other places, is Nazareth. And he is accompanied by his disciples. So notice he's going back to Nazareth. He's bringing his disciples with him, which is the sign of him being a rabbi or a master, that you would have a band of disciples. And notice all of this is very similar to what we've seen other places in Mark. On the Sabbath, what does Jesus do? He goes to synagogue like he's done every Sabbath. Jesus, every Sabbath, gathered with the people of God for public worship. That is his practice. We've seen it over and over again in Mark. Uh, Mark actually said this was just his practice. This is what he did. And so Jesus does it here again, and he's asked to teach again. And when he does, we're told um, that many who heard him were amazed. We've seen this pattern over and over again. Jesus preaches the word. Everybody is astounded and amazed when they hear. But there's, there's a little bit of a new note here, which is where did he get this wisdom? People have asked before, they're saying, you know, this is new and it's a teaching with authority. We, we haven't seen anything like this before. But in Nazareth, they got a question of where did he get the wisdom? Because they know he was not formerly trained by a famous rabbi. He doesn't have a piece of paper hanging on, you know, if you go into offices, they have what we used to joke and call I love me walls, right? Where I put up all the pieces of paper showing where I've been. I, I have an I love me wall at home that's got my Naval Academy diploma and my diploma from seminary. Jesus doesn't have anything on his I love me wall. There's nothing there to point out where he would have gotten this. So how can Jesus be so wise to teach like this? 
And apparently they've been hearing stories of all the miracles he's been doing. And once again, how could he be possibly doing this? And so if we had stopped there at verse 2, we might think that the next verse, if you've never read this, is going to be, and his hometown received him and had a parade in his honor, and they painted a big mural of him out there on the synagogue wall, right? But that's not what's going to happen. In fact, we get this surprising twist. Rather than a triumphant return, Nazareth is not happy. So notice in verse 3, their, their question, they said, where did he get this from? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So notice what they're saying is, well, we don't understand this. He's teaching like he's a great rabbi, but he's not a rabbi. He's just a carpenter. What does he think he's doing? He's getting above his raisin. Um, he's not from some important family. I mean, we might understand if he had some pedigree that he's, you know, the, the son of a rabbi who was the son of a great rabbi who was the son of a great rabbi, but we know his family. There's nothing about his family. Those, they don't even mention Joseph, who most scholars think is, has died by this time. And so they say, look, we know who his mom is, and we know who his brothers, and it names four of his brothers, James, who we know is going to become a leader and actually write the book of James. And Judas is probably Jude, who writes the book of Jude in Scripture later. Um, but we know who they are. We understand who they are. How, how can Jesus have this teaching? There's nothing in his family background that it was going to indicate this. Once again, he's getting above his raising. Who does he think he is. We know his mom, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. So he didn't get his wisdom from his family or trade, so how can this be? We know who he is. He comes from a family of small seeds. He, in fact, is a small seed. He's just a little mustard seed. But we're looking at this huge tree how can that be? And for those who've been following that, you remember is one of the parables. Jesus has already explained and described this, and they're struggling with it. They don't understand how a mighty tree has grown up when all they saw growing up was a little bitty seed. And so they're struggling. Now, the obvious answer is, yes, it's true he comes from humble origins. Yes, it's true he was not trained by a great rabbi. So how is he doing all of this? Because his source is God, not those other things. But that's not what Nazareth does. See, they're forced into a corner. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. We want another option. Can we get another option? And the answer is no. So Jesus isn't doing this because he was trained by a great rabbi. He's not doing it because of his family origins. But the fact is, he is doing it. So what is the source? And there's only two options. Wow, he has another source, another family, another origin that we don't know about and we haven't taken into account, or we can get offended at him. And what do they choose in Nazareth? Let's get offended at them. They are offended and scandalized. So rather than rejoicing, they are offended or scandalized. Now I'm using the word offended or scandalized. It's a, it's a hard word to, to translate. The word there uh, that, that is that they, they took offense is the word scandalizo. 
and the, the noun form is scandalon. Can anybody guess what English word we derive from that? Scandal, or to be scandalized. Okay, that is the words that we get from this, and it's used 44 times in the New Testament. It's a very major word in the New Testament, and it means to cause something to stumble or to fall, to shock, and oftentimes in the way that it causes offense. People take offense at it. So let me show a few examples of how it's used in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, talking about the gospel and why the gospel was being rejected by so many people uh, from Israel, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 28, 16, it says this, uh, Paul quotes, says, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so that phrase there, makes them fall, same word, it's scandalizo, okay? It's a scandal to them. They, they take offense at this. So here's the point that we should understand. This isn't just starting with Jesus. This had been prophesied 700 years before by Isaiah, Isaiah says, look, when the Lord brings the Messiah and he's the stone and he puts it out there, rather than rejoicing, people are going to trip and fall over him. They're going to stumble. Rather than building themselves on that stone, they are going to stumble over that stone. But there's two options because notice Isaiah says the one who trusts in him is not going to be put to shame. But if you don't trust in him, you actually become ashamed by him and of him. So it had been prophesied long before. This is the way of the Messiah and his kingdom. It seems so ordinary that men reject it, and then they are scandalized and offended by its claims. Look, if you weren't so ordinary, if we didn't know your mom or brothers, we might listen to this, but now you're saying this, and these claims seem outrageous. We already know that when Jesus returns to Nazareth one time, he preaches out of Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And what's their response? We're going to stone you to death. We might receive this from someone else, but we know you, you're not all that great. Okay, and that's the way people respond to the kingdom of God. And so those who refuse to trust and submit to God and submit to his word and, uh, and his kingdom are often offended by them. They don't stay neutral towards it. They're actually offended at it. Another place that it is used is in John chapter 6. Now, this is a chapter where the crowds have been building and they're following Jesus, and he's fed the multitude, a story we're about to come up to. But unfortunately, Jesus keeps preaching. And he preaches and says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And what's the response of the multitude? We're out of here. They can't stand that. And then we read in John 6, 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. They're grumbling at what Jesus has done. And Jesus, it was going so well, you were acting the way we wanted you to act, and then the old you showed back up. What were you doing? Now the crowds have all left, and they are grumbling. And notice what Jesus says. He turns to them and says, okay, I'll change my methodology. Is that what he does? I'm going to change the things I'm saying because clearly that didn't work. Now he looks at him and says, D does this offend you? Are, are you scandalized by me and by what I'm saying? Now thankfully this is where Peter, according to Isaiah 28, 16, is not ashamed and trusts and says, Lord, where, where else will we go? We clearly don't understand what's going on here. 
There's nowhere else for us to go. We're either going to be scandalized and offended, or we're going to have to trust in you, and we're going to choose to trust in you even though we don't understand. And so we see this thing here. Jesus' teaching offended the multitudes. The disciples are grumbling. They're confronted. But the question that Jesus posed to them, are you going to be scandalized by the Messiah, his kingdom, and his methods, or are you going to trust? Another passage, Mark 4, 17. We've already seen this word. This is in the famous parable of the sower. And you remember, Jesus talks about sowing the seed, and there's four different possible responses. And in the third response, he'd say that it's like seed that falls on shallow soil. And it springs up quickly, it looks good, but then the sun starts to beat down, and it's scorched, and it, you know, and it withers and dies. Well, when Jesus is explaining that to the disciples in Mark 4, 17, about that group, he says, But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they're quickly scandalized. They take offense. They fall away on account of the trouble and persecution. See, we thought embracing the word was going to bring us acceptance by other people, that it was going to bring us and embrace by other people, that it was going to give us power and make us popular. And in fact, it's doing the exact opposite of all that. Now I've actually got more trouble than I had at the beginning. And so some, are they stumble, they are shocked, they are scandalized by the rejection of the word and the persecution that follows. See, Jesus has told us in the parables, we want a God and we want a word from God that brings respect and power. But the God who is and his ways and his word actually bring humility and bring persecution. It's the exact opposite of what we were wanting. And and I use the word we because this isn't just about them out there. Are we tempted to the same thing? Oh boy, are we tempted to the same thing. I want a God who's going to conform to the way I want him to be. And Jesus says, when you do that, you're going to end up being scandalized. You're going to end up taking offense. One last uh, set of verses that does this. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 is talking because the Corinthians who are believers, who are true believers, the whole church there is struggling because they want a word of power. They want a word that the whole culture just says this is so wonderful. And then they've got the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, I'm not meeting your expectations, and here's why. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandal, and a offense to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And and notice he's using that. Foolishness is just another way of saying it's scandalizing, it's offensive to them, to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God. So notice that the preaching of the cross is offensive foolishness to the unregenerate. Can anybody remember when they would have said amen to that? I can. And make no, no, no mistake, it is. You mean you're telling me that my sin is supposedly so bad that God had to pour his wrath out on his innocent son? That's offensive. Yes, yes it is, 
to our unregenerate, fallen, wicked mind, heart, and flesh. It is offensive. But notice, uh, Paul here says that's what it's going to be. And let me say, because here's what's going on in Corinth. Notice Paul's writing to believers. If disciples are not careful, and we are being molded more by the culture and the world around us than we are by the Word of God, I'll start to be scandalized. I'll start to take offense. Because I'll start to, to respond the way the world and the culture around me respond. And it usually starts by being a cause of embarrassment. Ah, oh, this sounds so foolish. I'm looking for wisdom. I'm looking for a way that, that people will rise up and say, this is awesome. And the cross is not that. But see, Paul says, I'm not changing my message. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing it another way to get them to like and to respond to it. No, I preach Christ crucified. And you know why? Because what the world counts as wisdom will not save your wicked soul nor will it save mine. It has no power to actually deal with sin in your life, but the cross of Christ does. And so Paul says, if you learn from Jesus, if, if in, according to Isaiah's words, instead of stumbling and falling, if we trust in him, then what we see is rather than being a foolish, weak scandal and offense, the cross is actually the wise, powerful, beautiful means of salvation. Because what I realize now is, see, I don't need a heavenly guru. I need a savior. I don't need somebody who's going to tell me I'm okay, you're okay. I need someone who's going to bear the wrath of God in my place and tell me, this is not a self-improvement project. You have to die and be born again. And that's exactly what the cross does for us. And so the reaction here in Nazareth to Jesus and his word, his kingdom, is actually a picture of the response of humanity at large to the proclamation of the word of the kingdom. It offends. It scandalizes. So should we be surprised when it offends and scandalizes? But when I listen to evangelicals in our culture, we oftentimes are. How can this be? Uh, have, have you read the word? Because it, it's a divine promise Take it to the bank. So, notice what Jesus' response to this is. Is once again not to seek out, oh, i got to rethink this. My method's not working. Not what he does. Jesus says to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. So, he gives this, in essence, what is a proverbial saying about honor. We have a, a, a modern English proverb that's very similar, which is familiarity breeds contempt. The, the expert, the person coming in from the outside, from somewhere else, oh, that person's going to have the wisdom. But the person who's been right here, my, I, they're just one of us. But see, Jesus says that's exactly what's going on in the hometown. They are offended because of Jesus. Uh, he is, he's exceeding his humble origins here. Once again, to, to quote our, our, our Southern way of saying, you're getting above your raising here, Jesus. You need to just settle down and admit you're just one of us. Okay, all this other stuff, what do you think you are doing? And notice as we've already seen in Mark's gospel, it's not just in his hometown. Notice he keeps making the circle smaller and smaller. In his hometown, 
among his relatives and then in his own house. If you remember back as Jesus was getting ready to preach the parables and he had been doing all these miracles and the crowds are gathering around him, you remember his family came to him and what did they think about him? You've lost your mind. <laughs> we need to, okay, we're going we're gonna to take you off and quarantine you, Jesus, because something has broken with you mentally. So, something's not all there. We're concerned about you. This is his brothers. We know from John's gospel, they did not believe. James and Jude are later going to write books that are going to become part of our New Testament. At this point, they thought Jesus was crazy. They thought he was definitely getting above his raising. They were not going to put any murals up to him. They were embarrassed and scandalized. Why is our brother bringing this shame on our family? Now, make no mistake, the people of Nazareth are among the people of Israel who had longed for Messiah. But here's the problem. When the actual Messiah came, they didn't like it. Can we send that one back and get another one? That's what they're saying and doing. They're offended and scandalized by the, the Messiah who is rather than what they were looking for. Now notice Jesus there in verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now that's a pretty amazing verse. Matthew and Luke writing a little bit later even soften Mark's language a little bit here. But Mark is saying, look, no, Jesus could not do it. It's not because he's lacking divine power, but we need to understand God does not operate according to human standards. He's not going to shift to plan B because the people of Nazareth didn't like plan A. He's not going to do that. He will not meet their demands so that they can believe. He's already done everything that was needed, and they refused to believe. The problem was not they needed something else. The problem was in their own heart, which was stubborn. One of the commentators had this to say about this passage, James Edwards, and I'm going to put it on the screen so you can see it because it was a good encapsulation. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. The servant image of the Son is too prosaic to garner credulity. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him, too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus the Son of God. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. So it was in Nazareth, so it is today. We need to just understand that. The problem in Nazareth was not with Jesus, his word, or his power. It was the stubborn refusal of the people to abandon their false desires and their false expectations and embrace the reality of God, his kingdom, and his word. Peter, quoting the, the verse that I had out of Isaiah earlier, in 1 Peter 2, actually at one point, he uses a word that says when they rejected, it doesn't mean that they just kind of didn't know. It means they held him up to the light. It's what you would do with a piece of pottery to make sure it hadn't been cracked in the past. You would hold it up to the sunlight to test it, and then it was a word for they tested it and they rejected it. 
Peter said, this is what the people did with Jesus. It's not that they didn't know. They didn't like what they saw. They didn't want what God had given. Okay? And that's what's going on. And so notice in an amazing verse, you could preach an entire thing on just this. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. When God's amazed, it's either really good or really bad. We read a few times where Jesus is amazed at people who have faith. And the, the thing that amazes him is these are Gentiles most of the time. These are people who should. Man, it's amazing that they get it. But here, the people who should get it don't. And God in the flesh is amazed at their lack of faith. We'll get offended, we'll be scandalized, we will fall all over ourselves, but we will not trust. We will not believe until God does it the way that we want it to be done. And this is a struggle, and again, remember, it can be a struggle even to believers. I remind you, remember John the Baptist, greatest among the prophets, bold to do all of his preaching and everything? You remember he struggled and sent messengers to Jesus, and Jesus says, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble, who's not offended, on account of me. And I know I'm not looking like you thought, John. Greatest of the prophets. I'm not looking and acting like you expected. Hold on. Okay? So, what's going to happen then? Well, there's a resurgence of ministry. Jesus doesn't just stop and say, oh, man, even my own town doesn't believe. Even my family doesn't believe I'm giving all this up and going back to being a carpenter. Not what he does. Notice what he does, we're told in verse 6. He's amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around preaching from village to village. He doesn't stop. He just simply pivots and says, if you don't want to hear in Nazareth, there's a lot of other villages around. And so I will go and preach in the other villages. Nazareth is unreceptive soil. He doesn't stop spreading seed. He just said, I already told y'all in the parable of the sower, I'm just throwing seed out. And if Nazareth has turned out to be that shallow soil that takes offense at the word of God, I'm just going to keep spreading seed. I will just keep moving along. It's what he taught in the parables over and over and over. Jesus is saying, I've already explained this to you. Most times the seed falls on rocky, unproductive, weed-filled soil. Don't worry about it. Keep sowing. Keep spreading it. Keep going liberally. And then amazingly enough, he doesn't even just stop there. We might expect and say, okay, well, Jesus goes back preaching. This is the moment when Jesus says, okay, I've had you disciples with me long enough, and he's now going to send them out and refer to them as apostles later in this thing, which means sent out ones. He says, now it's time for me to send you forth. So calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So Far from being deterred by the rejection and offense that others took, Jesus expands the mission. And let's be honest, if you followed in Mark's gospel to this point, who would say, I think these 12 are ready? How much have they understood so far? I mean, nothing. Every time he's doing something, they're like, Lord, we're, you know, this isn't making sense. Let us tell you what to do. 
This, this is not an auspicious time. No, if, if you were investing in the stock market of the kingdom, th- this would not be a good investment. Oh boy, Lord. <laughs> I mean, you, son of God, you just got rejected. And so now you're going to send these guys out. I mean, seriously, this is not likely to work unless there's a spirit of God who can anoint them and who can work through them. And that they can just go and sow, and they're going to be rejected by some and embraced by others. The word of the kingdom is going to go forward. So if you remember way back early in the gospel, from the very time he called them, we had been told he had called the disciples so that they would be with them, and he could send them out to preach, drive out demons, and heal the sick. And we're told in verses 12 and 13, that's exactly what he does. They do the exact same thing. So they've been with him in training. He's now sending them forth. And I'm going to give a quote by a commentator named William Lane who wrote uh, what is one of my two favorite commentaries on uh, the, the book of Mark. And he says this, by situating these two incidents, rejection at Nazareth and sending out the twelve. Uh, at this point in his gospel, the evangelist shows that unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances, and that rejection is an experience common to the Lord and his church. So when the church struggles and says, we don't understand, I go forth and most of the time I throw seed, it does nothing. He says, don't you understand, Jesus, Mark put these two stories together to let you know the same thing happened to Jesus. And if God in the flesh experienced that, you, you thought it was going to be better for you? You thought you were going to be so good and so impressive that they were going to say, well, Jesus was nothing, but this guy is really something. Right? I mean, that's bizarre. So Lane says, look, he puts the two right together. He's recording right together. He's giving us detail on that because he wants us to understand. Jesus is giving him an object lesson. Do you see what just happened to me? I still go forward. It's going to happen to you. And if you look in the instructions, he tells him, you're going to get rejected by places. You're going to have to shake the dust off your feet. What do you do? You just keep going out. You just keep sharing the gospel. You just keep working. And just for a preview for next week, we're going to read about Herod and John the Baptist. You're going to see Jesus. Mark's put the stories together because it can get far worse than just having people take offense at you. But we'll come to that next week. So the mission of proclaiming God's kingdom and pushing back spiritual darkness doesn't depend upon the response of others. It's the command of God. The Great Commission is not make people believe. The Great Commission is tell them the gospel. That's our job. I can't make. They are stone cold dead. Just like I was. Just like you were. And I will tell you, at the time I got saved and regenerated, nobody was picking me as being top 10 most likely to get saved. I mean, I've mentioned before, 48 hours before I was regenerated by the Spirit of God, I was so drunk and stoned out of my mind. I had no idea what was going on. Not a person that you would have said, I think Jesus is about to pluck that guy out. It's like Saul of Tarsus. I've been reading an Acts this week. I'm going to pluck this guy out. Thankfully, he didn't say, I'm going to show him how much he can suffer for my name. Jesus has been much kinder to me than he was to Saul of Tarsus, Okay. 
God grabs at the most unlikely time. We're not commanded to make believers. We're commanded simply to proclaim the gospel. And when people become believers, start discipling them so that they can proclaim the gospel. Now, I'm going to go over a little bit more in after hours the disciples' actions, which is in verses 12 and 13. How they, I mean, the, the actual commission. I'm going to talk about it, so I'm not going to really go over the commission this week, but in after hours, I'm going to talk about when Jesus you know, tells them what they're to do when they go into the villages and all of that. But, but notice in verses 12 and 13, the apostles went out and did what Jesus said. They fulfilled it. And then we're going to actually get it again at, after the story of Herod and John the Baptist. Mark's going to come back again and bring it up because he's wanting us to understand this is our mission. This is what we are called to do. The apostles fulfilled it. They proclaimed the word. They drove out demons. They healed the sick. And so right on the rejection uh, at Nazareth, right on the heels of it, the kingdom is surging forward. It's, in fact, it, it's multiplied 12-fold here. It's not just Jesus proclaiming. They're going from village to village to village to proclaim the kingdom. So there is rejection, but rather than that stopping the kingdom, the kingdom actually surges forward. It goes more. You, you, you put a closed door here, I'm going in another way. That is exactly what is going on here, and we'll pick that up more in the next section. So what does this mean for us in trying to apply the word? There are a lot of things that I could bring up, and I certainly want to encourage one of the aspects that we ought to do. Brothers and sisters, we need to be just sharing the gospel with people, okay? Not up to you to make people believe. It is up to you and me to share the word, okay? I was, this morning in my quiet time, I was reading, it was the story where Cornelius had to uh, you know, I love the story where Cornelius is praying and an angel shows up and says, you've got to send all the way away to go get Peter and Peter's got to come back and preach. Has anybody ever thought, I don't know, God, there's a more efficient way. The angel could have just told him the gospel. I'm sure he knew it. Why doesn't God do that? That is not his method. If he wants to get the gospel out here in central Maryland, who are his representatives? Look around. We're a motley crew. But here's the good news. You, you should not feel bad if you just read the, the, the Gospels and look at the disciples. I'm not Jesus, but I can match what those clowns have been doing. Because it's not them. It's the Spirit of God, the Word of God. So, But what I want us to focus on is how we respond to the scandal of Jesus, His Word, and His cross. See, Jesus, his word, and his cross, his kingdom, his, his method were a scandal and offense in his town. And when we read the book of Acts, there was scandal everywhere it goes in the first century. And if any of you noticed, it's still a scandal and an offense today. We're, we're actually, I, I had debated taking a break in Mark's gospel, and I think I am going to do this at some point, and doing a series called Back to the Future because never has it been more like it was in the time of the first century than it is today. We are experiencing the same currents in culture as they did 2,000 years ago, which should be encouraging to you and I. We've already won this battle once. We already have. So we need to recognize that and see it. It was causing that then, it does today. Jesus and his gospel didn't meet the desires and expectations of people in that day. And they don't today. It was the same then as it is now. But see, the problem never was Jesus. 
It was not his kingdom. It was not his gospel or his word. The problem is always our expectations. It is always our desires and our demands. That's where the problem lies. It always is. So we have the same problem they had in Nazareth, which is many of us examine God and his word looking for things that we judge and say, that is unacceptable. Here's the reality. God and his word are judging and examining you and I. It's not my place. You want to talk about getting above your raising? You and I are not qualified to judge God. We are not qualified to judge the word of God. It is searingly looking into us. So the first question for every one of us here today is, have we truly embraced Christ in faith? Or, like the people of Nazareth, have we judged him and demanded he needs to be different and conform to my expectations? Which way have we done? And I don't, I don't, I remind you, these people in Nazareth, where were they every Sabbath? They were gathered with the people of God. They were hearing the word of God. So, so just gathering with God's people does not make me a believer. The question is, have I truly, when, when the rock of offense comes, am I offended or do I trust? Do I believe? If you are here, have you ever looked to Christ for salvation? I mean legitimately, truly embraced him in faith. If you have not, I urge you do so right now, and I urge you grab me afterwards and talk with me. We can talk about being baptized in water and, and starting a path of discipleship. But have you done it? Not just I'm kind of aware of Jesus out there. See, Nazareth had heard about him, but when he actually showed up, their response was offense. Have you responded in faith or offense? Now, let me speak to the rest of us as believers. If you are a believer, I'm tempted to two extremes because of the scandal of Jesus, his word, and his cross. There's two extremes. There's two ditches that we have to avoid. Number one, when others get offended at Jesus, his word, his cross, his gospel, as we are spreading the seed and they are offended at it. They don't like it. They start speaking evil of those things and even of us as the messenger. Um, we can become offensive back. I can mirror what's happening to me. The Word of God and the cross are offensive to sinful humans, but we are not to be offensive back in our behavior. Paul nowhere says, look, the cross is going to be offensive anyway, so you can just go ahead and add to it. No, that, that's not what we are called to do. But see, the natural human tendency is to mirror the behavior of others. If they speak harshly, if they speak nasty, if they are trying to cut me off at the knees, what do I want to do? All right, don't get quiet on me. All right, see, see I, I can tell you, and my wife has seen, I'll rip your arm off and beat you with the bloody end and things that have actually come out of my mouth with people. Okay, thankfully it's been a few years since I've, but that, that's, amen, my wife says, that's right. I get that, that is, that is the natural human tendency. And, and we have examples in the scripture. 
James and John, when they go to Samaria, and the people of Samaria reject Jesus on that occasion when they go in there, what's the, what's the response of James and John? Lord, do you want us to call fire out of heaven? First off, if Jesus wanted that, I suspect he could have done it himself. Just go on with that. But Jesus rebukes them, we're told. He says, you don't even understand the spirit that we're supposed to be of. And that's what he's saying is, look, I came to save these people. You, at the first sign of them not liking it, at them rejecting us, you want to, you want to respond the same way they're responding to us. You want to call fire out of heaven and consume them. And I can identify with James and John. I get it. And it is so popular in our culture right now. But please hear me. We can never proclaim Christ by being unchristlike in our behavior. That'll never work. It will not work. We can never push back the kingdom of darkness by words or actions that are more like the kingdom of darkness than they are like the kingdom of light. Now, see, I want to, I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like being open to being rejected. It's just not, I mean, you know, Naval Academy, Marine Corps, you, this is not, we, we want to project power. And the gospel is the exact opposite. We project weakness. We are vulnerable. We are, we're not going to strike back. So that is one temptation when people are offended and they, and they begin to persecute on that is to react back. The second one is when others are offended, we compromise. We do the opposite tack. Rather than acting back, I'm going to remove the offense by just saying, okay, I won't say that anymore. I won't behave in that manner anymore. I won't do that. You've been offended by the message, so I'm going to compromise. When others reject Jesus and the gospel, and especially if they take offense, it's easy to just say, I'm just not going to proclaim the word anymore because that's what they're taking offense at. And even worse over time, I can be tempted to compromise my beliefs and behavior to be accepted by others. Man, you, you look around, you can see this all over the church today. We're going to change what the Word of God says to make it palatable to unregenerate human beings. We're, we're going to contextualize to reach the culture, and at the end of it, we're no longer salt and light. We're not distinct and different. So compromising on the Word of God always leads to pain and destruction down the road. Always leads to pain and destruction. And we have an example of this in Scripture. We won't turn to the passage, but if you remember, Jesus begins the book of Revelation writing, giving letters to John to send to seven churches. And the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, 18 to 25, was compromising with Jezebel, who's an Old Testament character, um, by engaging in sexual immorality and the worship of idols. Why are they doing that? Because see, when you're not getting with the sexual immorality around you, when you are in fact condemning it, we're going to see how did that work for John the Baptist? They didn't like it. Has anybody noticed there might be a little sexual immorality and confusion in our culture? Do we have a choice in speaking what the Word of God says? We don't. But when we do, 
it brings offense. And see, the church in Thyatira said, okay, we're not going to become offensive. What we're going to do is we're just going to, we're going to skip around that stuff. And Jesus says, if you keep on this path, I'm going to come and snatch your candlestick out. You're going to cease to be a church before me because you cannot go that way. So we're tempted to do those. But see, to be salt and light, we have to remain distinct from the unbelieving world. And this is inevitably going to bring conflict. But if we compromise, we're actually abandoning people to the kingdom of darkness. What happens if Jesus doesn't send the apostles forth with the gospel and the message? All the other villages are abandoned because of what happened at Nazareth. We simply can't follow that path. So here's the question as we come to the Lord's table. Which of these is the temptation for me right now? It's not a question, brothers and sisters. If, if we are proclaiming Christ and his cross and the gospel and the word of God, the ways of the kingdom, is it going to be a scandal or an offense? Yes, always and forever until Jesus splits the skies and returns. It will be a scandal and an offense. That's not the question. Question is, when that happens, which of the two ditches am I more likely and in danger of running into? I take up the sword, so to speak, and I'll make you understand what I'm saying, or I'm going to compromise. It'd be very much easier to do either one of those. What's really hard is I'm going to stay in the middle, and in a Christ-like, loving, caring manner, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm willing, even as the Apostle Paul, I'll take beatings if need be. I will, I will turn the other cheek, but I am with Christ-like humility going to proclaim the truth, proclaim the gospel, teach the Word of God, and if you respond negatively, I will continue to do it. I will not compromise, nor will I begin to behave as you do. And I will trust that in the midst of that, God's going to be calling people out to his name. How many of you know that that's hard? It's very hard. We are always tempted, one or the other. So which one is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Because see, the path of life and blessing is to be in the world, but not of the world. It's a whole lot easier to say, I'm either going to not be in the world, I'm just not going to have anything to do with, with it, or I'm in it, but I'm just going to become of it. I'm going to become just like it. But we can't do that. The path of life and blessing is to be in the world, but not of it, to sow seed, endure rejection, and keep sowing the seed. That's where life and blessing is found for us, and for the people to whom we're sowing the seed. So we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I remind us again that uh, as we do this, that whatever comes, whatever may happen, God has shown how he is with us. And at this table, we see the same pattern. Jesus did not compromise on the truth of God. He was rejected. He was crushed. And what did that bring for us? Salvation. At the same time, thank God, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It does not cry out for justice for the very ones who crushed him. Instead, it pleads for mercy. 
And as we come to the Lord's table, we receive grace, we receive forgiveness, and we receive power to help us walk in the footsteps of Christ. So we're going to go ahead and come, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to pass out the elements. And so I'm going to read out of 1 Peter chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. He had just quoted a little bit earlier about Christ being the, the stone of offense. And he tells us this. Brothers and sisters, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set the example and has done more than that. He has worked salvation for us. If he had spoken deceit and not told us the truth, we would be lost. If he had rejected the path of suffering, we would be lost. But thanks be to God. He did not, and we are saved. So we're going to pass out the elements. I remind you to please take the two cups together as they come by. As we do, I encourage you just to meditate and let the Lord speak to you. Lord, which one am I more tempted to do? Am I being tempted to become like the world uh, in its way of uh, offense and striking out, or am I tempted to compromise so that I won't suffer? Let's let the Lord speak to us. We'll pass the elements out, and then we will take together. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup, He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, you did not compromise or waver from the Father's will. In every desire, thought, word, and deed, You fully embraced, obeyed, and expressed his will. Yet you were rejected and scorned by the very ones you came to save. When they insulted, reviled, and beat you, you did not retaliate, but suffered that we might be saved. Like this bread, your body was broken as you bore our sins in your body upon the tree. Through your great suffering and sacrifice, the cross, which was a tree of death, has been transformed into the tree of life.
And so we come now and receive the bread of life in faith and gratitude. Take and eat. Lord, as the Lamb of God, your blood was sacrificed and poured out so that our sins might be taken away. Like Cain, we murdered you, spilling your blood upon the ground. But we give you thanks that your blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For while the, his blood cried out for justice, your blood cries out for mercy that we might be forgiven. Oh, what mercy we have found through your blood. What forgiveness and freedom we have found in you. So we come now to receive the cup of life in faith and gratitude. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out for the Lord to strengthen and empower us this week. Hallelujah. Lord, through your suffering and death upon the cross, you have saved us forevermore. But as we read in Peter, your suffering is also an example for us that we should follow in your footsteps. Yet we humbly acknowledge that this is beyond our strength. For when we are rejected, our flesh wants to either lash out or to compromise. Knowing this, we cry out for your spirit to empower us now. Fill us so that like the apostles, we might even rejoice when we have to suffer for your name. Strengthen us so that we might not compromise nor sin in our response to others. Fill our mouths with your word. Fill our hearts with your love. Empower our hands to serve others even in the midst of their rejecting you and your ways. Like the apostles, O Lord, we pray, send us forth to proclaim your word and to drive back the deeds and powers of darkness. Lord, we ask all of this in your name, for you are the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And if you agree, say amen. amen. Now, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.